0: Well, good morning, church. Aubrey was very uh, gracious in his introduction of me, and very thankful for that, Aubrey. Thank you. You and I are very good friends, and it's always an honor to serve with you, and it's always an honor to be here with you, Church of the Incarnation, as we worship the Lord. I love stories of good versus evil. How about you? Um, when I grew up as a kid, I, <clears throat> I collected comic books as a boy, and Of course, one of my favorites was Superman. And I always loved the story of Superman defeating Brainiac or defeating Lex Luthor. And I was a big fan of Batman, who was always defeating Joker or Bane or whoever the bad guy was in the comic, and Spider-Man and so on and so forth. Our story this morning is deeper than just a good versus evil story. And I think we can get caught up in a trap as we hear The words of Mark as he's writing to the church, as he's writing to the saints, we can hear this kind of a a, a good versus evil type story. And though it is part of that, it goes deeper than that. In just a few verses in the beginning of Mark's gospel account, we have been swept up into an exciting crescendo of activity. Hardly has the good news been announced when John the Baptist appears on the scene gathering crowds who respond to his persuasive preaching of the forgiveness of sins. The promised one who is coming, the one that was foretold in Isaiah 42 that was read this morning, the one who would bring justice to the nations, the one who would bring healing, he arrives and is baptized accompanied by splitting heavens and a voice announcing divine favor. And even when Jesus astonishingly announces that the good news of God's reign has already arrived and calls hearers to repentance and faith, we're we're just a little surprised that he calls out four fishermen to follow him. And they do, leaving their former lives and going right after him. There is no time to grab a breath. Immediately, immediately. And Mark uses the word immediately often in his gospel to communicate the expression of temporal uh, sequencing. Uh, First this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. But if we translated verse 21 literally, here's how it would sound. It would say, And coming into Capernaum, immediately the Sabbath arrived, and he taught in the synagogue. It almost sounds as though Mark is trying to show us that when, when Jesus shows up, the Sabbath follows him immediately, as does the teaching that comes as a result. This use of the word "uthos," the Greek word "uthos," seems to have a sense far more interesting than some temporal sequencing, though. Indeed, Mark seems to be saying that it is the very presence of Jesus himself that more or less causes, or maybe even in some deep sense, leads to these other things happening. The promised one has come. And with him has come the kingdom of God. It all kind of has a holy inevitability, which is just what you expect when the Son of God is near. He is, Mark is emphasizing the immediacy of God's reign and rule, breaking in and present in the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth, this carpenter. And so immediately Jesus leads... His disciples to a synagogue on the Sabbath, and and this was the custom of Jesus. You know the gospel accounts, you've probably read all the gospels, and you know that in the stories, Jesus always showed up when worship was happening. He always was there when the community of believers gathered together in synagogue on the Sabbath day to worship the Lord. And it was his custom, like most Jewish males who would in this time, at least those who were considered clean, he would participate in the gathered worship of the community. It was there in the synagogue where they would, they would say the prayers. They would gather for the liturgy to offer their prayers to God and singing, and they would observe typically a reading from the Torah, what we today know as the first five books of the Old Testament. After the reading was given, someone, perhaps an elder, Sometimes I guessed, but typically a scribe or a Pharisee would give an explanation or teaching on the public reading from the Torah that was given. So Jesus and his disciples, they enter into the synagogue and he is the one that ends up teaching. And not only does he teach, as we read in this gospel account, his teaching is new. It's, it's different. It, it's kind of fresh. It's, it's different from that of the scribes. And Mark is not making that comparison just by coincidence. It's different from the teaching of the scribes, Mark tells us, because Jesus taught as one with authority. The people are, not, are amazed, not that he teaches, but it is the, the authority with which he teaches. It was just something different about being in his presence and hearing him teach. What did they mean? Did he rant and rave? Did he shout? Was he clever with rhetoric? Or maybe he was just an adept storyteller. He may have done all of those things or none of them. The context forces us to guess what Jesus must have taught, or maybe it doesn't. The point for Mark is not so much what Jesus said, but how the people responded to what he said. They are astonished. They are amazed at Jesus' authority, a quality which Mark indicates is noticeably lacking in the teachings of the religious experts of their day. See, the scribes and Pharisees, when they would teach the Torah, They made a habit of supporting their content with reference to other authorities. This is what so-and-so taught. This is what Moses said. This is what Rabbi Yazinski said. This was how the scribes and the Pharisees taught, quoting both recent and ancient authorities. But Jesus didn't do that. As we see in the other Gospels, particularly the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, in the the Gospel of Matthew, he was quite outspoken for he would say, You've heard that it was said, but I say. That's different. Maybe a little bit fresh. Jesus behaved and spoke as if he was in charge. And he backed up his speaking with action. And so as we continue on in this passage in the Gospel of Mark, he reveals to us that the mere presence of Jesus in the synagogue, and anywhere for that matter, seemed to always draw out some presence of evil that he would ultimately confront. Think about that for a moment. Everywhere Jesus went, whether he was in Galilee or even in Jerusalem, he had a propensity to draw out the evil when his presence was there. And so as he's teaching in the synagogue, and I don't think this is by accident that Mark tells us the story of the unclean spirit confronting Jesus in the synagogue while he's teaching, as one of the first events of his ministry, of Jesus' ministry. One of the first events of Jesus' ministry is this man with an unclean spirit, Interrupting the service. Now some of you out there might be thinking, I want to interrupt the service too. Don't do that. <laughs> Mark reveals to us that the mere presence of Jesus draws out this man with an unclean spirit. And if Jesus' words of instruction are spoken with authority, what now takes place demonstrates the inbreaking of God's reign and power and rule in Jesus Christ, the one foretold in Isaiah 42, who would bring justice to the nations. Immediately, there is in the synagogue one who recognizes Jesus' power. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God the way that it's written in the original language kind of gives a sense that what the, dean, what the man with the unclean clean spirit was saying was really was, what the heck are you doing here? In other words, why are you here and why are you interrupting what I'm trying to accomplish? But interestingly, when Jesus shows up, not only in the synagogue, but when he shows up in our lives. And he invades our hearts, we kind of say the same thing, don't we? What are you doing here? Are you going to change me, Jesus? Are you going to transform my character? Are you going to make me more like you? I confess to you, church, that sometimes I feel that way. Lord, what are you doing here? I just want to go on and and be about doing what I want to do. But Jesus always comes with this invasive power that is yet gentle and touches my heart and says, oh, I'm here to make you new. So this man with the unclean spirit, he's disrupted. This unclean spirit is unhappy. The two questions in the confession of the man with the unclean spirit continue to astonish us. The recognition of Jesus by the unclean spirits and demon-possessed people in the Gospel of Mark will be heard again and again throughout the Gospel account. But the first confrontation in the synagogue, the place of instruction and worship of God, is dramatic. Not only do they know who Jesus is, but they know that Jesus is the stronger one and will ultimately destroy them. The battle has been engaged, and the powers of this world are up against the Holy One of God, and it's no contest. No contest. Now, let me just pause for a moment. Here we run into a problem in our modern world, right? Because I know what some of you are thinking. Let me ask this question. How many of you were born in the 70s? Raise your hand. And I, I kept it general, 70s, not specific, right? So, those of us who were, who were born in the 70s, we know of the movie The Exorcist. You've heard of the movie The Exorcist, right? All you who were. Raise your hand. Keep your hand raised. You've heard of the movie The Exorcist, right? Or am I speaking to a brick wall here? All right. So, my sisters were older than me. They were born in the 60s. And so, when The Exorcist came out, they. We're dying to go see that movie in the theater. And guess what they did? They took me with them. <laughs> what a horrible thing to do for a child. What a horrible thing to do to your sibling. I hated the movie. Now, some of you may not have hated the movie. I hated the movie, but I hate all horror movies anyway. I hate the horror genre, but that's just me. Everybody's entitled to their own opinion, I guess. But I'm watching this movie and I see this girl who is possessed by a demon who literally turns her head all the way around, who spews out, and I'll leave it there. (laughs) This is not what is happening here. Don't look at this possession of a man by an unclean spirit as if this guy's head is turning all the way around and he's spewing Well, I will not proclaim. That's not what's happening here. This is a man who if the people in the synagogue would would have known that he was possessed by this unclean spirit, would have been kept out of that synagogue worship. He is a man that would have been left outside the door. He is a man that would have been the outcast of society. Because in Jesus' day, if you were sick or you were unclean, you were possessed by a demon, and those are not the same. But if you were ill with a fever, or you were sick and you were dying, or you were a leper, or you were possessed by a demon, you were not welcomed into the community of believers as they worship. Jesus doesn't kick this guy out of the service. He heals him and he restores him. Do we keep people out of service of God? Do we tell certain people that you're not welcome? I pray that we would learn in the words of our Lord and Savior that no one is unwelcome, that all can come and be confronted with this good news of Jesus Christ and what he's doing in the world. But we run into a problem. If we're not thinking about the exorcist when we read this story, In Jesus' world, as in many parts of the world today, but not usually so visibly in the modern Western world, people's lives were blighted by forces or powers beyond their control, forces that seemed to take them over. I think a lot of us kind of skirt along past that idea in the modern world. Really? Demon possession? Uh, I don't know if I want to go there. That's what a lot of us think. Can that really happen? Uh, I don't know. People say in our world, I don't know what made me do it. My son says that all the time. I don't know what made me do it. I just did it. Yeah, I know why he did it. People in Jesus' world reckon they did know why some people seem totally off the rails and I'm not saying that my son is totally off the rails. There were hostile spiritual forces out there, hard to define, but powerful in their effect. Calling such a force a demon or an unclean spirit doesn't mean they knew exactly what it was. It was a way of saying that the person was overpowered by an outside force, a malign power from beyond themselves. And that's where we lose sight in this story. A man has been invaded by an unclean spirit. He has been taken over by an unclean spirit. A man who has a soul, who's been made in the image of God, has been taken over from a force outside himself. Jesus' response to the engagement is one of authority. Be silent and come out of him. Jesus will use this same response of direct speech in calming an angry seed. We will say, "Peace, be still." In demonstration that the unclean spirit has been overcome and its exit from the man is uh, is shrieking. It's it's likewise dramatic. He, the unclean spirit convulses the man, and shrieks loudly, and comes out of him. Once again, the response of the congregation that is witnessing this event is one of amazement. What is this? A new teaching? With authority, He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey Him. This is not only a new teaching, but it is a demonstration of the radical newness of Jesus' authority and power that He's bringing in with the kingdom of God. Which is what Kevin said so eloquently last week, is the gospel. It's the story and the announcement that God, again, is going to be king. That he, again, is going to restore a broken world. A world that has been broken. A world that has been torn asunder in so many ways. Jesus is going to restore it. And part of the point of God becoming king at last... Was that all rival powers were, were being defeated? Jesus came with power and authority greater than the forces that had corrupted and defaced human lives and its creation. For God to become king meant that all other forces had to be dethroned, they had to be shown their place. And the most obvious sign of that was that the dark, shadowy forces of evil that had seized control of some benighted individuals were being decisively challenged. And in that demonstration of power and authority is the witness that this Jesus he's not like those other scribes who teach. He's not like the other religious leaders. He's different. He he loves unclean people. And he welcomes in the brokenhearted. And he restores the outcast. And he lifts them up. And he gives them life. He's different than the scribes and the Pharisees who teach. So Jesus heals this man with an unclean spirit in the synagogue. And we read along in the gospel that. Immediately, they go to Simon, Peter, and Andrew's house. And Jesus walks into the house, and Peter's mother-in-law was there, and she was sick with a fever. It's important to note that, that, like I said before, illness bore a heavy social cost. A heavy social cost. Not only would a person be able to earn a living or contribute to the well-being of a household, but their ability to take their proper role in the community, to be honored as a valuable, valuable member of a household, town, or village would be taken from them. Peter's mother-in-law is an excellent case in point. It was her calling, her honor to show hospitality to guests in her home. Cut off from that role by an illness, it cut her off from doing that which integrated her into her own world. Who was she when she no longer was able to engage in her calling? But you see, Jesus restored her to her social world and brought her back to a life of value by freeing her from that fever. It is very important to see that healing is about restoration to community and restoration of a calling, a role as well as restoration to life. Because I can tell you from firsthand experience that life without community and calling is pretty bleak. 2009, I, um, my wife and I were in uh, North Carolina and I was going to seminary at Southeastern Baptist in Wake Forest. And y'all remember that during that time there was the swan flu. I think they called it the H1N1. I contracted the swine flu. And I was very sick. Very high fevers, 103, 104, sweating, not getting better, drinking Gatorade. That was what my doctor told me. Drink Gatorade, drink lots of it, drink Gatorade. But I remember that... I. Not only was I not probably welcomed in community because people wouldn't want me around with the swine flu. My wife didn't like hanging out with me when I had the swine flu. But we had great friends in our church who really couldn't hang around us, couldn't really be around me. And I felt devastated. I felt like that my sickness was not only affecting me. It was affecting my family. But I had a pastor friend of mine, Brett Marlowe, who came and visited while my wife was at work. <clears throat> and he walked in the house and 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 I was laying in bed, so I didn't know who it was. So I didn't have the energy to get up and look who it was. I really didn't care. That's how sick I was. But he walked in the house and he he knocked on the door of our bedroom and I'm I'm worried that somebody's breaking into my house, but it's Brett and he comes in the door and he says, Pat, it's just me. I'm like, what are you doing here? (laughs) He's like, well, Pat, I came to pray for you because we miss you. We want to see you get better. And so Brett came in and he laid hands on me and he prayed over me. And I'll never forget his prayer to this day. He, he, it was very simple. He said, Lord Jesus, I, I don't have any power in and of myself to heal my friend. I don't even know that I'm righteous enough to ask anything of you. But God, I know that you're a God of grace. And I know that you are love. So Father, would you heal this man, your servant? and restore him back to full health. And I ask it, Jesus, in in your name, because I know that in your name, all power and authority comes from you. This is about the fifth day that I was sick with the swine flu. I'd probably drank 55 bottles of Gatorade. But I tell you, 3 hours after that prayer I no longer had a fever. 3 hours after that prayer I felt like some of my energy was coming back. 3 hours after that prayer I was able to get out of bed and walk around a little bit and actually see the outside of the world and look outside of my house and 3 hours later I said you know what I'm going to go walk outside and just breathe in the fresh air and I did. And God healed me and restored me. You know what was the most joyous part of being healed and restored? Was yes, that I was able to now spend time with my family. My kids were able to hang around me. My wife was able to be in the same room with me. But I was actually able to go back to the community that I loved. See, that's what Jesus does. When he heals, he, just, he doesn't just take the sickness away. He brings something to you. He gives something to you, and that something is new life. And it restores you not only back with your health, but it restores you back to your community, which you desperately need because none of us should be isolated in our lives. We all need community. Mark is teaching us very simply that all authority and power is in the Son of God. The one who's come and brought the kingdom with him. And that, my friends, is good news. It's good news that leads to an ultimate calling where Jesus will give his own life as a ransom for many. And he will take that which we deal more desperately with, which is our own sin. He will take that, he will crush that, and it will be nailed to the tree and him along with it. As he becomes a sacrifice for our sins. And that's good news. But not only will he take our sins to the tree and restore us from that sinful life that we have, through his resurrection, he gives us new life. New life to love one another, to serve one another, to be in community with one another. I don't think it's an accident that when Mark is writing this gospel count and Peter's mother-in-law is healed, that it says, and she served. She was healed. Jesus literally lifted her up. The word there is raised. He raised her up and he gave her new life and she served. And that's the point. Is that the kingdom of God calls us to an authority that is very awkward but is very powerful. It calls us to serve one another, to honor one another, to love one another. What else will we expect from the Son of God, who is Jesus Christ? Amen.